Hello, and welcome to Contagious Thinking, coming to you from the MRC, University of Glasgow, Centre for Virus Research. I'm Jack, and in this episode, Douglas and I are joined by Professor Patricia Nuttall, who's been talking to us about the growing field of tick-borne viruses, and how the remarkable saliva of ticks helps these viruses evade the host immune response. Hi, I'm Jack. I work on influenza virus in Ed Hutchinson's lab. Hi, I'm Douglas. I work on HIV and lean immunity with uh, Sam Wilson. Hi, I'm Pat. I uh, have worked on ticks and tick-borne viruses. Oh, wow, I'm thanks. still interested in them too. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, so before we get into ticks and tick-borne viruses, uh, can you tell us where you're from and how you sort of got into science in the first place? Uh, well, I started um, in microbiology at, um, at Bristol and then did a PhD on uh, bovine viral diarrhea virus, if you can believe that bovines have virea. Yeah. Uh, uh, diarrhea. That sounds like a particularly know, messy PhD. It, it was, I didn't really relish taking samples. No, no, oh. no. So when I get the chance to go and look at seabirds and viruses and seabirds, I got very excited and started collecting ticks from seabird colonies. And hey, there were lots of viruses there. Cool. So why are we interested in ticks and seabirds? Um, well, it was more productive at the time than doing the project I was supposed to be doing, which was trying to <laughs> figure out why, um, what caused a, a disease called puffinosis, which is a disease of puffiness, puffiness, the Manx shearwater. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that, was that just sort of ecological reasons or was there? Um, it seems like a really sort of niche uh, species to be looking at. A niche sort of yeah. thing. Well, it was, so my f- this was my first postdoc, which is mm-hmm. based in uh, zoology department in Oxford, and uh, with the uh, what was then called the Inst- the unit of invertebrate virology, and um, so two senior scientists had got together, a virologist and an ornithologist. The ornithologist had said, "Hey, we've got this problem in shearwaters that breed on the." island of Skoma and Skokum off the coast of Wales. Most of the Manx shearwater population breeds on those two islands. Mm-hmm. Um, every year since the year dot, um, uh, when the fledglings start fledgling, certain birds on certain parts of the islands have blisters on the webs of the feet. Some of them look spastic and they die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't know why. And um, some medics who are interested in birds, um, in fact, Miles and Stoker, who became very prominent um, in the MRC, they had a look and they found a filtrable agent, as viruses were called there. It was published mm-hmm. in Nature in 1948 or 53 or sometime like that. Mm-hmm. So this would make a great project mm-hmm. to, f- to go back with modern technology Oh, and the okay. modern technology then, when I did my postdoc, was really using an electron microscope. <laughs> so that's how I got into into viruses and disease. And I still don't know what caused puffiness, <laughs> <laughs> but there were lots of ticks on the on seabirds, and um, they're much much easier to isolate viruses from. Yeah, so I guess ticks are part of a sort of a broad class of things that bite us and spread viruses around and like as we're more normally familiar with uh, like mosquitoes and flies and things yeah, like that so uh, I've never really especially before I got here I'd never really heard that much about ticks as a yeah. as a problem so really? can you give us an idea of sort of the scale of the problems well, we get by tick biting um, yeah I guess ticks have really um, come to the fore through Lyme disease so that's not mm-hmm. a virus of course it's a bacterium but 
um, that's like the number one uh, vector-borne disease in North America uh, and in parts of Europe. Um, so um, that's made people more aware that ticks transmit nasty things. Um, in uh, much of Northern Europe, it's, there is also a virus, tick-borne encephalitis virus, which if you mm -hmm. go to Austria uh, and you're going in the, in the forest, it, you're advised to actually be vaccinated, I think most of the population in Austria is vaccinated against a tick-borne virus. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they're important and, and seem to be an, an more of increasing importance because ticks like to feed on deer. Deer numbers have gone up in North America and Europe and that is considered to be one of the main reasons why there are more ticks about. Yeah. Do, do we get sort of like globalisation problems too? Like you'll end up moving... I know, I guess cattle and things run more frequently, so there's more chance to move vectors and diseases with it. Is that not so much recognition? I don't, uh, I don't know so much. Although, um, I mean, there've been some studies on on um, uh, de uh, you know, pets, dogs, mm -hmm. ticks that are brought across. So, I mean, that's a bit of a concern. But, um, like you, as you know, you know, it's you can have something exotic. It's it's got to find mm -hmm. something that it'll that will transmit it and there might not be the right tick species in, in that country. So I guess it might be a bit more limited. Okay. Are ticks yeah. as uh, influenced by global warming? We're seeing the spread of um, uh, mosquito-borne viruses uh, further north uh, due to the, the warming climates. Will, mm. will ticks or tick-borne viruses be affected by that? I don't know if ticks are... Um, climate... Well, it's, it's thought... Um, you know, ticks um, over winter. Um, it's thought that the conditions are um, improving for ticks. So, for ticks, the main thing is moisture. Uh, so, as long as they can keep damp, you know, a hot, dry, sunny day, no, you won't find ticks around. Any moisture in the air or some, yeah, the undergrowth in woods, yep, yeah, that's what, what they like. So, if we have more wet weather, uh, and less snow, and, and um, we're likely to have More better conditions for ticks. Uh, I was just telling um, one of your associates that from in in Oxford, the main site um, for ecology um, is Whiteham Woods. So lots of work's been done there, and it, it wasn't then that there's a famous um, acarologist, parasitologist, Sarah Randolph had a a 10-year Royal Society grant to look at ticks in Whiteham Woods and she was studying Ixodes trianguilliceps on small mammals, never found any rhythmus around and couldn't understand why with these perfect conditions um, there was no rhythmus. And I had a, a, a third-year student in 2000, I think it was 2014, and I it was collecting ticks from various parts and I said well you can go to Wyndham Woods but you won't find ricinus he found it just one or two ticks and then the next year there were a few more and now uh, one of the people in zoology had erythema chronica minus that classical sign of Lyme borreliosis it's a ring like rash mm. on the legs 
So how was, did your original colleague feel happy that a student had gone in and found tips that they'd never had she to was, you know, she was delighted to hear <coughs> it. Because, I mean, she retired in 2013, but she was delighted to hear it because she said she was going to have it on her gravestone. I can't explain why there's no reason. <laughs> she said, no, I don't need to worry. That's good. Okay, so uh, what area of ticks uh, do you focus on then in your own research? Well, um, I've got to that time of life where I'm retired. So I have this grand title of Emeritus Professor, which basically means I can more or less do what I like. <laughs> uh, I do take on some responsibilities, but mostly I do writing these days. And um, I've still got one project going which is on one of these molecules we've found from tick saliva. It's the one that um, does amazing things to dendritic cells. And we've been trying to get this sort of commercialized, so because mm -hmm. we think it could be um, an, an immunotherapy, basically. So, so we've still got, um, we've, we've found it very difficult to get funding. Uh, in fact, we've got um, a lab in China at the moment that's doing some analysis for us and depending on how those results go we'll see we'll see what comes next so yeah so i guess just backpedaling a bit on what you said there so uh tick saliva having interesting compounds in it is that so that's something you've been working on before yeah yeah in fact i was involved in in a spin-out company um oh. back in of oh, crikey 2000 or something um uh, it was called Evolutech. Um, it got as far as a float on the AIM market, alternative investment okay. market, so um, clinical trials in humans. Um, so, so what makes tick saliva so sort of worthy of study? Uh, well, um, I mean, I think because I love viruses, um, I'd like to think, try and understand how they, how they viruses take advantage of what mm -hmm. the tick molecules do. I think there's just so many fascinating questions about how how the tick is 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 seeing the host and responding. So I think if we could understand what was in tick saliva and what it was doing, and the dynamics of the process because it changes with time, I think we could write a new immunology textbook mm -hmm. because yeah. uh, there's so many things that we kind of we think. Well, this molecule, for example, um, this dendritic cell uh, modulator, it's it's a beta barrel structure. It's a protein that's called a lipocalin. So that means it it's a carries things and it carries cholesterol. It carries a single molecule of cholesterol. Why on earth? <laughs> ah, you see, yeah. you know? It's interesting. That's <laughs> so, okay. so 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 have sort of got these anti Immune compounds in it? Immunomodulators, anti-inflammatories, uh, anticoagulants, um, analgesics, mm -hmm. uh, wound it modulates wound healing, mm -hmm. you, you name it. Cool. All those compounds are to help the tick feet, would not it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, the, the, those, those ticks that I've been involved in studying are the ones that feed for a long time. So the adult female, maybe 10 days even. And some species even longer. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. attached to the yeah. same site on the animal yeah, yeah. at that time. Oh, yeah. um, so I guess if you have immunomodulators, it implies there's something your immune system can do to fight off a tick. But that's not entirely clear to me. So I can see, obviously, you know, bacteria. You just make bigger and better cells and just swarm them. But ticks massive, and you've only really got 
like little cells to fight it off with. So what, what what's your body trying to do when you get bitten by a tick that the tick's trying to stop? It's trying to it's trying to heal the wounds. It's trying to stop the loss of blood. I mean, our bodies are very much designed to to not lose blood. Yeah, that's you know there are lots high of high on the list of priorities. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Keep yeah. the blood and inside. Yeah. So when a blood sucker comes along, especially something like a tick that hangs around for days mm-hmm. and can take a, quite a bit of blood. Are you, you know, have you been bitten by it? I hope not. I was thinking about this earlier, and I don't, <laughs> don't believe I have. No, no yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a number okay. of times, and I've never felt it. Oh, and it? when I actually found the tick, mm-hmm. there was no redness around it. It was all a nice, quiet, you know, mm-hmm. everything seemed to be normal, except there was this animal in, uh, taking blood from me. And and I think and and all of that, if you compare that with like you get a splinter, you know what it's like. It goes yeah. red and it swells. Feel it feels sore. Yeah. Um, so the tick is doing some pretty amazing things. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Just out of curiosity, do um ticks uh, like humans a natural host of ticks? Because it feels like if you're stuck on something for ten days, you'd run up against fingers pretty quickly. Like someone would rip you off and kill you in the process. <sighs> Well, they do go for. You've definitely never been bit by tick. They usually <laughs> go for places that yeah. you might not even explore. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I found so, and also they will more or less feed on anything. Mm-hmm. So I was working on seabirds um, on an island off the coast of Ireland, and mm-hmm. it involved putting my hand down pur- pur- puffin burrows to try and get a bird mm-hmm. and look for tick, and then. A couple of days later, I was brushing my hair, and I found one on the back of my earlobe. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, I was no. very careful to remove it, make sure to get the identification. It was definitely a seabird tick, okay. but it was yeah. feeding very happily on me. Mm-hmm. But no, humans are not natural hosts of ticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just they've just adapted so well to being able to feed on mammals that. Mm-hmm. Long comes a human, so they'll say, yum, yum, here's a meal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something a wee bit different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we've just got time to go. There's one interesting thing you had in your talk just now, which was about how um, viruses can spread between ticks within a host without the host ever appearing to be infected. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, of course, this goes against all the idea of what an arbovirus is. So an arbovirus, mm-hmm. you know, the textbooks tell you it's infects it's it's inoculated by the vector an infected insect or a tick and then uh, the idea is that it has to hit target organs so it can replicate and spill off into the blood and then when another tick comes along or another mosquito it takes up the virus that's in the blood so this um, we showed quite by accident really many years ago that you could actually get infected ticks and uninfected ticks feeding on the same host but physically separated no evidence of virus in that animal the animal was perfectly happy but those uninfected ticks became infected and we've developed this hypothesis which we call the red herring hypothesis because we're saying that the viremia is irrelevant Mm. Uh, what the tick wants to do is to get from a the infected tick to the uninfected tick, and, and preferably lots of uninfected ticks. 
and it wants to do that by the most efficient way possible. So maybe it, it actually uses this, uh, the immune system, dendritic cells, migrating to draining lymph nodes, interdigitating the lymphocytes, and those lymphocytes being home, homing back to the skin, attracted to where the uninfected ticks are feeding. If it could hitchhike a ride on that, that's, that, that pathway, which you know, exists, has been well described, then it will be a really efficient way of, of perpetuating the virus so that its basic reproduction number is more than one. Mm-hmm. So do we have any sort of evidence that viruses have a way of hiding from the immune system while it's doing that? Because it seems a, a risky place for a pathogen to go into the middle of a lymph node. I feel like that's uh, kind of walking into I enemy think, territory. I think <laughs> if they're inside the cell, and, mm-hmm. and you know, viruses yeah. do themselves have mechanisms although mm-hmm. some of the other viruses maybe are quite simple compared to herpes viruses for example mm-hmm. but um, they also yeah virus is going to do something to control it and yeah if, if the the virus doesn't need to cause damage it just needs to yeah. to to yeah so get in and get out get a new host mm-hmm. yeah because well, for another virus when it you know when it infects you you're only one host so yeah, it's not going to survive by just infecting you. It needs to use you to infect other vectors. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, is I that think. Okay? Yeah, yeah. No, it's the, we're coming up to the the final question then here. I think, which is um, now, I think, mandatory on the podcast, which is, if you weren't a scientist, what else would you be doing? Oh crikey! Um, well, um, I. I, I love photography, um, so there's a, a kind of artistic, creative side of me that maybe I'd be spend more time. Doing. That's cool. Yeah, I don't think we've had a photographer before. That's a, okay. <laughs> a novelty. Um, also, I think just because Colin might get cross with me if I forget this one again. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, upcoming scientists? Oh, I would say um, uh, make sure you've got so. This is wet science, really, which mm-hmm. I'm born and bred in, and I think understanding the biology of the system is really important. But I would say um, controls are really important. And if your control goes wrong, just check that actually it's not because something there's something there that you didn't anticipate, because that set me off on a journey by realize, actually exploring why the controls all became infected when they should have stayed uninfected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, yeah, I quite like that story because normally your controls going wrong is a, is a bad day in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kicking the autoclave in across the room kind of day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, right. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to Douglas and Patricia for joining me for this episode. If you want to hear more about other viruses, you can find all our previous content over at cbrblog.myportfolio.com, or you can email us at cbrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at cbrblog. Join us next week, where we'll be talking with Dr. Laura McCoy about the problems that antibodies have in dealing with HIV. See you then.